Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Dr. Amber Donaldson. Amber is a physiotherapist or in the US called a physical therapist at the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. She's the Vice President of Sports Medicine and was the Medical Director at numerous Paralympic Games. So welcome to the podcast, Amber. Thanks, Liz. It's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited that we managed to snavel a very short period of your time because you're an extremely busy woman. And I know you've just been to Australia and about to head over to Switzerland for meetings. So I'm very lucky that we managed to nab you for a second. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your history as a, as a physical therapist? Sure. So I started in physical therapy and actually finished my last uh, rotations. I came over to Australia and did uh, a rotation at uh, Olympic Park and then at uh, Mechris in Melbourne doing some post-polio research and then also up in Sydney uh, working with clinic there doing some taping and different things. So that was kind of my last rotations. I'd set those up and knowing that the sports medicine is phenomenal in, in Australia, I did that. And through my connections in that group, they kind of invited me to come back and do the Masters of Manipulative for Musculoskeletal Program at uh, Melbourne Uni. And so I applied for that. So I went home, graduated, and then came back to, went back to Melbourne and did a master's there. And it was, it was phenomenal. We only, there were only 10 of us, I think from around the world and really great mm. opportunity to, to really hone my skills as a, as a manual therapist and sports physical therapist. So I completed that. And then I went back and actually married an Aussie. <laughs> we went back to, <laughs> back to the U S uh, lived in Hawaii because why not? And Mm. Worked there for a little while and then went and worked at the WTA tour for so pro women's tennis for many years and was the medical director there. And that role really was a lot of travel, you know, eight, nine months on the road and really mm. pushes you. It's a it's a hard kind of lifestyle, but really made me a better therapist and clinician and working with our athletes mm-hmm. and having to be kind of on top of things. And then made my transition over to the USOC at that time, and in 2020 became the USOPC with Paralympics in it. But I've been there for almost 12 years now. Mm -hmm. So I still work as a clinician uh, sometimes, especially at the games, but doing a lot of administration, overseeing kind of all three of our clinics across the country are kind of the lead with Paralympics, our mental health program and our women's health program feed up to me as well. So kind of a lot of different hats in my role, mm. but it's been, it's been quite a ride. And I really, I've been very blessed along the path to, to work with some exceptional clinicians and exceptional athletes as well. Mm. Wow. And yeah, I think there's been quite a few changes recently at the USOPC in terms of that mental health space. So we'll talk about that in a second. How did you get involved in working with the para-athletes and becoming the medical director for the US team for the Paralympic Games? So I think uh, historically at the USOPC, we had not had a lot of physical therapists or physiotherapists. And that really is our specialty, I think, is doing a lot of rehab and working and understanding athletes of different or individuals with 
differing abilities and impairment types. And so it kind of was a natural fit where some of the other providers just didn't have that experience and it worked elite sports or collegiate sport with individuals and athletes without disability. And so understanding the, the nuances and how to modify programs and just to think about that motor planning and how how we rehabilitate athletes. And I had had a lot of experience of working in patient rehab and kind of different settings along my physical or physiotherapy training. So it, it was really a natural fit and a passion of mine. I, I love working with our Paralympic athletes because they they challenge you. They have amazing drive. And mm-hmm. so it was not only a natural fit, but really something I wanted to do and really kind of jumped into and wanted to kind of take the lead with that, that team. Mm. And so in terms of, I guess, giving some background, you work at a training centre where there's residential athletes, there's camps-based athletes. So you have interactions with the athletes in their daily training environment. And then you also lead up and head up a a team of therapists and and sports medicine professionals at the Paralympic Games and any major games. In the daily training environment, what do you see as the most common issues that come to you with the para-athletes that may differ from the able-bodied athletes? I think it's dependent on the sport a little bit. You know, we've got our athletes that are residents, as you mentioned, and those, at least in Colorado Springs, some of the sports include para-swim, judo athletes, para-shooting, para-cycling, para-triathlon, and so, you know, right now we've got the para basketball team in. So we've have lots of athletes that actually live there full time. And then we've got campers that come in. So sometimes with the campers, most of our Paralympics athletes are fairly decentralized around the country and they come in for a really kind of short burst of time to do intensive training or camps. And so we tend to see some overuse injuries or injuries in which they have not maybe manage those as well on the road because either a lot of them are working full-time jobs or going to school and, and may not be there to receive kind of ongoing care and management. So sometimes there's things that have been put off for a little while that we're trying to sort through or there's overuse injuries where they're just really slamming the training uh, in that short period of time. Sorry, actually, also to add, we, we live at altitude and in Colorado Springs. And so that's a fair transition. Very few athletes that live higher than where we where we live and train there. So that transition, especially if they're coming in only for a few days, is pretty challenging for all of our athletes. It gives them a good training, though, but it's, it's, it's pretty challenging. It's very dry and it's very high from an elevation perspective. So I think that that adds some different challenges and on top of their training. From our resident athletes, it's kind of a combination. We've got some athletes, you know, who are training and they're they're hitting the road a lot and then they're coming back. We've got some athletes with wounds, a lot of UTIs, especially because it's so dry here, they they underestimate their hydration and kind of get behind on that. And then there's some, you know, more catastrophic, you know, like they've they've got complicated medical histories. And so sometimes there's, uh, we've just got, we've got a few athletes that are fairly complicated with medical histories that, you know, there's an overriding disordered eating with 
training loads, with mental health, and, and kind of some of those multi-level pieces start to, to yeah. show themselves in these settings. But they also present with a lot of the same injuries and illnesses that we see in all of our athletes from, you know, orthopedic shoulder injuries or their knee is, you know, sore and they sprain their MCL or ankle sprains or mm. so it's a lot of that. And I think sometimes providers that haven't worked with a pair population get a little bit intimidated and aren't sure how to approach our athletes. And, and the majority of the time it's, it's, it's exactly what you see. Yeah. So it's just treating that, but at time we just have to keep in the back of our mind, their baseline medical history, which at times can add a new complexity to things. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So do you feel as though that medical background is more complicated or more prevalent in certain impairment types? Like I think a lot of people assume that in spinal cord injuries, for example, there may be more medical complications and, and issues that you're dealing with. But do you see that in other impairments as well? We see, yeah, we actually had a, we had a conference this past week and we were talking about that, that I don't, I don't know if I've ever met a non-complicated paralympic athlete that just has <laughs> one straight up impairment. I think that, that uh, at least as a unicorn, I've probably never met, but I think, I think there's, you know, some that are more straightforward, but they, a majority of them have a, a multitude of different things that they're dealing with, whether that whether they're coming to the table with congenital concerns or whether it's an acquired injury, you know, a lot of our uh, Paralympic athletes are from the military. And so they may have an amputation mm. plus a long history of TBIs. So I, I, you know, I've definitely our athletes with spinal cord injuries have more complexities around thermoregulation and, and depending on their levels, you know, wounds, UTIs, and, and then they can have, fractures and different things that they don't even know are happening on mm. their extremities. So they have definitely, I think, the opportunity to have more complications. But uh, as thinking, thinking through some of our more complicated athletes with really diverse backgrounds, a lot of them are athletes that, you know, appear to just have a just have a single amputation, but really have a lot more <laughs> going on. And so I don't know that I can say that you know, across the board. But yeah, I just, I think overall, they, they bring a lot to the table with them. Yeah. And, and some you can see visibly and some you can't. And I think those are the ones yeah. that's where it's challenging, you know, because however they appear to us, they, they're also, they're dealing with a lot of different things, uh, whether that's mental health or medications, pharmacology pieces, there's, there's just more complexities to to them as a as a human yeah and and do you think the pain piece is a part of that that it seems to me in in the work that I've done is that there's a lot of different types of pain like yes and parallel athletes experience lots of different types of pain and part of their medication is related to that so do you think that's kind of one of those factors that seems to cross over a number of different impairment types. Absolutely. And everyone that, you know, interprets pain differently and what that, you know, comes out as. And 
we obviously know there's a strong psychological component of pain and how you how you manifest that, where it manifests in your body, which you know sometimes it's related to the injury and sometimes it's maybe related to something else. Our, our athletes with mm-hmm. amputations, you know, phantom pain is a really a very real thing and it can be very debilitating. And and some of the athletes have had good rehab post injury or post amputation, and others haven't. And so you know, are still dealing with some of those things many, many years later. There's mm. a lot of trauma that has happened in some of our athletes and just uh, the understanding of how trauma manifests in the body in so many different ways is a, re- a very real thing. And so, mm. it, yes, I think pain is such a such a key piece to have a, a better understanding. And even some of the athletes I don't you know, they, they, their description of pain can be very different. I, we have an athlete who had her was awake when her legs were amputated. I mean, I can't even imagine mm. the amount of pain. And mm. so that is that is where mm. she measures all other pain against. And so yeah. in, in some regards, it's a little bit dangerous because they underestimate or minimize things, you know, concussion or that that's that's nothing compared to what I have experienced in my life. Um, mm. as far as pain so sometimes i could get them in a little bit of trouble that uh, minimize or underestimate some of the symptoms and pains that they have and maybe wait a little bit too long to to manage them and then where others okay. may be super sensitive or hypersensitive and have had so many doctors and so many have been poked and prodded their whole life that just mm. being touched it, that they're fairly sensitive to that and and it takes some some work to get them comfortable with just touch and being able to work on rehab and sometimes those are athletes that we work with really through exercise and other modalities than than doing a lot of hands-on work with them because they're it's almost overstimulation mm-hmm. so yes i think there's quite a gamut depending on kind of what they bring to the table. Mm. And what about the gut? Do you see a lot of gastrointestinal related issues that come up with some of these, with some of your para-athletes? Yes, yes. We Luckily, we've had less illness overall, <laughs> given all the, the mm. mitigation factors that have been in place because of COVID and, and other things, which has uh, honestly been really nice from that perspective that illness has not taken out athletes as much and that's been a bonus for COVID if there is one but yes I think I think you know in our athletes with spinal cord injuries they're in a seated position or if they're in their sport they're often in a very flexed position whether that's on cycling or Mm -hmm. and so just the ability for their GI system to be in a position where they can have the gravity doing its job and, you know, really having compressed through their, through their trunk makes it, you know, pretty challenging. A lot of our athletes, you know, use catheters and particularly when they're traveling, you know, don't want to bother people or don't want to get up to, to use the bathroom. Or mm-hmm. bath. And there's also well, all the bathrooms are really unhygienic. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misinformation about that out there too that I think, and I know you were a very big component of that too, but education is such an important piece. But as our athletes come up through the Mm. pipeline, they've been told really bad information about that. And so I think Mm. just the genitourinary system in general can be really mismanaged from uh, toileting and 
UTI system. And so a combination of all of those and, and you know, spinal cord injuries, they, they may not have good sensation. They may have some disruption to their GI system in general. There's, yep. there's a lot of body kind of dysmorphia and understanding how they look different than some of their peers. And so, you know, disordered eating is, is a real thing that, you know, they're, they may not be choosing the best options for their fueling uh, or their recovery. Yeah. And, you know, and then they add in travel and not hydrating well enough. And so combination of those things is, is part of it. But I think also from an illness perspective, especially our athletes in, you know, wheelchairs, their hands are on their wheels and now they've picked up everything. Yeah. You know, an eye injury or eye illnesses are actually one of the top things we see at a games. And it's been reported by the IPC because they're, you know, they're touching everything with their hands and then they're, they're eating and they're touching their face. And, you know, at our recent Mm. games, there was a lot of opportunity to wash your hands, but that's not always the case. They're going right from, you know, it's snowing outside or muddy and they're having to push through all of that right into the dining hall or to go eat or so. Yeah. I think it's a kind of a, a combination of a lot of things and a lot of things that all of our athletes face, but then they have some different complexities just because of the way their anatomy may be and their overall physiology. Mm-hmm. And then some of those things I think are, are self-limiting that they're kind of putting themselves in some of those challenging situations as well. Mm. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, some of the nutrition related strategies you've talked about a high risk of urinary tract infections, particularly during travel or when, when athletes come to Colorado Springs and aren't used to the the high altitude and the dryness. What are your common recommendations from a nutrition perspective for preventing urinary tract infections? Well, I refer them to the dietitian <laughs> is one thing, <laughs> um, you know, but uh, I, I think, you know, getting some objective data, whether that's a specific gravity, a UA, and we do we do a fair amount of labs with the athletes where appropriate to kind of keep track of those things. But I know that's not always a possibility when we're on the road or traveling with athletes to just kind of keep close tabs on where they are. But you know, I think it's really educating them that they it's, it's prevention and not if they're if they're already thirsty, they're kind of it's too like they're behind the behind the eight ball. So they need to really stay consistent and stay hydrated and have an understanding they're coming to particularly when they come to Colorado Springs or challenging places where it's more dry or humid that it's going to just take more of an effort and but that that's so important and you know a lot of education around those that that use a catheter on proper cleanliness and using it and not waiting too long because you know that could that can cause a whole lot it can be very it can even be life-threatening if they are uh, waiting to to use the toilet so i think those kind of things are really important to us you know not changing their diet drastically when they go to different places as much as possible to maintain consistency and sometimes I know when they come to the training center, it's we've got pretty good food <laughs> and a lot of options yeah. that maybe they don't have at home. And they're suddenly trying things and things that are, you know, super spicy or super, you know, really different. And as they travel around the world, going to food trucks is not a great idea. And <laughs> really being yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, super adventuresome is maybe not the best idea, particularly before a competition, but really, mm. you know, going back to the basics and really trying to 
make sure that they're monitoring their hydration and their their fueling is really key. And so just talking about that and also as they come in to train that their output of their energy levels may be much higher than what they typically do on a, in a normal day. And so having that understanding and just not expecting to do exactly the same thing when their load is changing. So those are kind yeah. of the, the main things, but really working closely with our dietitians is important and our physiology team to make sure that, you know, we're not missing things if they're high sweaters or different things like that, or, or if they're having troubles mm-hmm. with thermoregulation, how does that play into to their hydration and nutrition? And so. Yep. And what about injury prevention? What what do you think are some of your key recommendations to prevent injuries in para athletes? A lot of the same things we do with all of our athletes. Really, we'd love to live in the world of prevention better than uh, trying mm-hmm. to take care of injuries. And so, educating athletes on you know strengths and weaknesses. We try to do our, our pre participation physicals, or we call them elite athlete health profiles, with our athletes on a regular basis. And that in that we look at a lot of things. It's over several days. We we do bone density assessments through a DEXA scan. We do labs. We do if if there's a need a you know an ECG cardiac exam. And then we'll do mm-hmm. range of motion, manual muscle testing, sensation, and then we'll do some functional testing depending on their sport, we'll do that with uh, motion analysis or uh, instrumented treadmill. And so we'll look at their their actual movement. And, and the athletes we see are all very elite, but there's still little things we can mm. tweak. And sometimes there's differences that we pick up on side to side that may be causing, you know, that may not be from their impairment, but maybe, and may not be dis- specifically from their sport, but maybe some adaptions that adaptations that they have yep. acquired over the years, or that they're trying to avoid an injury or things like that. And so we try to screen for those and make sure that we're mm-hmm. we're checking out those pieces, and then we start to address that with with rehabilitation programs and exercise programs, working really closely with strength and conditioning. If they're working with them mm-hmm. to to modify and and identify and talk through look, this is what we found. This is where we need you to be. Is this because of an injury that, you know, maybe hasn't been properly rehabbed? Our athletes always Mm. like to be better yesterday (laughs) and they've got tight competition schedules. (laughs) And so they, you know, they really, a lot of times push their return to play maybe faster than, than is most ideal because of the timeline in which their Mm. competitions and their qualifying has to occur. And so that doesn't mean that we can't still continue to rehab people as they're training and as they're competing. And I think sometimes people think that that has to happen separate from training and competition, but it, it can very much happen mm. in in collaboration with that, with our teams and just being really specific to, to what needs to happen, making sure the athlete's an active participant in that, that they're continuing to do their rehab exercises long after they've recovered I think that's when we start to see re, you know, injuries pop up again is when they've thought, oh, I'm I'm good enough. I'll just I'll just top on that. So you know, a lot of the same things, and and then it's a lot of education because a lot of our Paralympic athletes are actually fairly new to sports, and some of them may have done the sport prior to their injury, and some may have not, and are much newer to their sport than some of our Olympic athletes. We also see some of our Paralympic athletes transition who do a summer sport and a winter sport or 
transition from swimming to now doing triathlon and, you know, maybe have never run and they're a visually impaired athlete and learning to run is not an easy thing. Uh, It's not something that's completely natural at that level. And so, you know, working really closely with the whole uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team to look at an athlete and what they're coming with and, and addressing all of, you know, every area that we can across the board. And, you know, sometimes that's working with the prosthetist is, is their prosthetic fitting properly? Are they, you know, expending too much energy with circumduction or, uh, you know, is the knee not fitting right? And so you're really working closely with all of the members of the team, the coaches, you know, what are they Mm -hmm. seeing based on what the athlete is feeling? I think that's really the key pieces, you know, working with their equipment, working with what we see from a physical perspective, working with the mental health team, because a lot of the restrictions sometimes are, or fear avoidance to coming back after mm. injury is really, a really key piece. And so it's, it's taking the team approach to, to an athlete, both in the prevention piece, as well as, you know, when they get, when they get injured, we know where athletes are going 110% and that that's kind of part of elite sport is is injuries and illness but how can we minimize the impact of those is is a key part of what we try to do absolutely and i think you brought up a lot of well do you feel like the para athletes particularly if they're quite new to their sport do you feel like they actually fully understand the scope and the extent of all the things that can influence their ability to train on a day-to-day basis and their ability to be able to do that over an extended period of time? No, I I don't think so. And particularly a lot of our new athletes or, you know, up and coming athletes, I think they also don't, they underestimate the energy expenditure for their activities of daily living. You know, if they're in a wheelchair, that's their ambulation is through their upper extremities to, to wheel around. Or if they've got, they're an athlete with CP that, you know, just moving around in their daily life uses a huge amount of energy. And then you add sport on top of that and uh, sport at this level is even more. And then you add in sponsors and you add in, you know, all of these other Mm. components that are part of being an elite athlete. And this is their job. Maybe they also have a job and a family and school and uh, it's a lot for them to balance. And and I think making that jump from, you know, just, kind of recreationally doing swimming as part of their rehab after their injury or as they were growing up to now being a competitive athlete. It's a huge jump. And I don't think that we do the best job of transitioning. I feel like there's a bit of a gap from where they're an inpatient rehab uh, patient and after Mm -hmm. their injury or, you know, diagnosis to then getting to elite sport. There's, you know, I think there's a lot of areas where we can do probably better with the education and, yeah. and, and us as clinicians also not, not underestimating that, that transition and how significant that is, you know, in our, yeah. in our Olympic athletes, that's not probably as noticeable because a lot of them have been in collegiate sport and have been playing club sports since they were little and they've kind of made that you know, it's been more progressive where with our Paralympic athletes, and it's not all of them, but a good number, it's a fairly drastic jump to elite sports. Mm. Mm. So I think, yeah. I, and the, the messaging that they get in that rehab setting is quite different than, than the messaging that you might get for elite sport. For example, 
if you talk about weight, often the messaging is you've got to not eat too much to prevent, you know, you need to prevent weight change or weight gain because then that might make transferring more difficult or you won't fit your prosthesis as effectively. You know, those sorts of messages uh, at, at a rehab setting are focused on a different outcome than what they need to be in a performance related setting yes exactly they're uh, you know in the rehab facilities and, and they they do a phenomenal job but I absolutely think, I, I think yep. their their main focus is to get someone able to take care of themselves and that is really mm. a big piece is can they can they ambulate can they feed themselves can they cook can they drive like some of these kind of basic activities of daily living and are not you know, they, they want them to be active. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of our athletes learn about sport is that these mm. facilities, but a lot of them don't. And I think that's kind of varied around the world and across even the U.S. is uh, the information they're getting in those settings. But yeah, absolutely. that That's their focus, which as it is as it should be, is making them, yep. you know, able to to kind of take care of themselves and contribute. But, you know, I think most of them are thinking these, you know, individuals are going to go, you know, work in a cubicle and, and do, you know, probably not, <laughs> not uh, ultra marathons not a lot high of level yep. sports. And, uh, you know, this is, this is hard for us to understand even in, in our Olympic athletes, you know, majority of providers don't have an understanding of what that entails either. And so if you yeah. add in, you know, disabilities. And on top of that, I think it's, it's even more foreign to, to our providers and medical providers in, in those early settings. Yeah. Yeah. We did a, a recording, um, a few recordings ago on low energy availability and, mm. and sort of talked in that podcast about the mismatch of understanding of energy needs and and how we actually don't have a lot of data to help us actually work that out yet in a lot of impairments so you know even for practitioners that's a difficult thing sometimes to really quantify let alone as an athlete but yeah I think it's a it's a key thing and it drives a you know low energy availability so the inability to meet fueling needs for training as well as the needs for day-to-day life yeah it it doesn't just impact on weight it impacts on so many other factors the mental health the the physical like the the illness risk the bone health you know it has so many widespreading factors that I think everything links in with each other and can sometimes compound themselves yes and I think you bring up a really good point there's more, but there's still very limited research in our Paralympic population and even more so in our female Paralympic population. Mm. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to extrapolate information and data from our Olympic and athletes without dis- impairments to that population. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. It's the best no, we have. No. I, you know, there's no wearables that are validated in this population. So we're again, trying to extrapolate. Yeah. Uh, you know, things that aren't made for athletes of short stature or are visually impaired athletes Mm -hmm. who have their circadian rhythm is not, is so different. And we're trying to kind of fit that peg into a round hole. That's not, it's not quite the same. And, and so we definitely need more research in this space. You know, I think we do the best we can with what we know, 
but we're making a best guess in a lot of instances. Mm, absolutely. I was also wondering, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you find? Like, give me the top two misconceptions that you come across with para-athletes and either from the athletes themselves or from practitioners. It's a good question. I think the one that I mentioned before, just that, you know, they're too complex. I'm not going to be able to treat them. I, I don't know what to do mm. with a Paralympic athlete. And I think just that is so wrong <laughs> that you know, they still <laughs> have a body. Their anatomy is there. We can still treat them and and they know their bodies so well. I think yes. that that is, you know, a misconception that you have to often try to I don't know, try and come up with things that, you know, a lot of times they know exactly what they need and you just have to ask them or you have to just mm. watch them train. And, and it, uh, it really is, <laughs> it's not that hard. I think it's, I think it's yeah. super exciting. It's, it's really invigorating as a clinician to be challenged in a different way and just be creative in our, in our way that we can rehab. But a shoulder is a shoulder and, you know, a lot of times their sport or how they have to use that is different uh, depending on their impairment, but how we approach it is very similar. I think, you know, I think the other one is, I think sometimes from our, our Paralympic athletes too, is that they may underestimate their abilities as well. And some, some of them mm -hmm. not, some of them go more than more than what they probably <laughs> should but i think some of them are surprised by what they can do and i think that's that mm -hmm. is where i i love it too is i can say no you can do that come on let's go so mm -hmm. i think they underestimate them their own abilities or they've been told probably for many years of their lives like you can't do that you don't have you don't have mm -hmm. legs you can't do that or you're not you're mm -hmm. not walking and so i think that's an opportunity for us to say, no, you can do that. And maybe we have to modify something and we can help with that. But I think that's pretty exciting to, to give someone that freedom as well. That mm. uh, mm. you know, I, I remember one of our athletes was a Paralympic swimmer and all of the athletes in her classification were going off the blocks in swimming and she had to start in the pool. And it was a significant disadvantage for her. And so we worked on that. We identified that as something she really wanted to do and didn't think she could do it. She'd never been able to go off the blocks. And that became our goal. And we really worked on mm. that. And she eventually was able to go off the blocks. And it made such a difference, not just on her performance and her ability, because she was a phenomenal swimmer to keep up with, you know, her competitors, but just like she could do that. That was just not something anyone... Yeah taken the time really to identify as but there was there's a lot of plasticity in the human body and where you know mm. we've got had athletes with you know what they've had with injuries for many many years and I've seen improvements years later I just make taking a targeted approach and identifying what their goals are so I, I think mm -hmm. that that is something pretty special to be a part of and exciting to see how you can make those improvements in an athlete when they feel like, no, mm. this is my baseline. I can't ever, can't ever move on from this. Yeah. yeah, That's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I love that the, the body is so plastic, it's so plastic. I think we, we sometimes forget that the body has amazing ways mm. of looking after us and also of adapting to, to a new, 
a scenario and and sometimes we even as able-bodied individuals we don't push ourselves into those situations where we actually try and change something because even we don't think that we're that plastic but in fact we are we are the, the human body the is pretty body's so resilient mm-hmm. yeah yeah fantastic well amber i guess one of the questions that i like to ask my podcast guests is for some just some really quick recommendations to sum up for athletes or for coaches and practitioners so starting with athletes what what would be your key message for athletes I think that for the athletes, I think is really get a get a strong team around you who has an understanding of your sport and and sports medicine, and don't expect that because you're a Paralympic athlete, you don't deserve that as well. I think that's that's mm-hmm. really important to to find your team, and you know if it's at a if you're a Paralympic level athlete, then you know working with that team that may be provided around you, but you need all of these people looking after you because everyone's looking at different things. And that's how, that's how you get better. You know, obviously our Paralympic athletes know their bodies incredibly well and they know what they want to do, but sometimes that that's our job and let us get to do our job too, to help make you even better. And, Mm. you know, so I think that's a really important piece is, you know, back to the plasticity piece, but also understand like there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity where we can help make you better. And then, mm, yep. yeah, sorry. And for coaches and practitioners? I think, you know, for, uh, it's probably the same answer. Uh, it's just use your mm. teammates and don't, I think that's what I always tell students as I talking to them, never work alone because you don't, mm. you don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of things we don't know. And we all have varied trainings and experiences and that toolbox is what really helps us be successful and help our athletes mm-hmm. because like I said, no two Paralympic athletes are the same and they bring yeah. a lot of different different things to the table that we if we can work together as a team, we can be so much more successful in servicing them and and help them, you know, and, and there may be there's almost every day there's something I've never thought of or I haven't seen before and I've been doing it a fair amount of time. Mm. But it's, you know, talking through that with a group just helps you to see where you can provide service to these athletes, maybe where they don't, where they need education and where, you know, the coaches see something that you don't see because they're looking at it in a different way. And so really just working as a team is such an important piece because we're complex as human beings. (laughs) We're not two dimensional. (laughs) And so we shouldn't be approaching our treatment or care of an athlete in a two dimensional way. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Amber, yeah, as I said, I know your time is extremely valuable and we really appreciate the fact that you've shared your experience and your knowledge with us. I love the approach in terms of always trying to find the best solution and not being afraid of looking outside of the box or asking someone else to, you know, for their advice or their thoughts because I think, you know, I like to say that a Paralympic athlete is a an end of one problem solving exercise Um, (laughs) because yeah they all come with different even they though that two people may have the same impairment they can be completely different in terms of how they approach it and and their background and their understanding and the issues that they're facing and so I think 
that that collaborative approach is is important but also from the athlete's perspective trusting that there's a team of people that you can pull around you that will help you to get more out of yourself and 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 be safe and and as injury free and healthy as you can be along the way yeah i can't agree more so to finish off with, I always like to ask a more personal question about podcast guests. So what's your favourite food? Ooh, mine is probably a certain cuisine uh, is North African food. Uh, and so, Ooh. yeah, I, I have been lucky to travel a lot in my life. So I don't know that I have a specific food, but I just love North African food is just so flavorful and fresh. And so, yeah, that kind yep. of counts any, as an answer. Is it the, I, yeah, it's not particularly spicy though, is it? No, it's, it's, it's more very that flavorful. A like, range of right, yep. preserved lemons and just really fresh flavors that are, yeah, I, I don't even know how to totally explain it but actually just did a cooking class this past week and uh <laughs> you know did did mm-hmm. a did a moroccan dish in a tagine and it just brought back amazing memories of good 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 food <laughs> so that probably is my, my favorite if i ever got the chance to pick one uh-huh Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Amber. I wish you all the best with the upcoming trip to Switzerland and and the meetings that you've got. And, yeah, keep on doing all the fantastic work that you do and building a team of of really great professionals around you. Thanks Um, so much, Liz. It's so great to talk with you and thanks for all the great work that you're doing as well. As Amber has highlighted, preventing injury and illness is a really key component of ensuring consistency of training which is what leads to performance in athletes and how so many different things need to be considered and how many different practitioners can influence that in an athlete. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. And also, if you like it, please share it with your friends and family. I hope you join us next time when we talk to Mike Derner, who is a paracycling coach. Note that there may be a couple of weeks gap between this podcast and the next.